there are drugs that are being tested that will address some of the coexisting conditions, ADD, epilepsy, some other physical conditions that also exacerbate some of the challenges that individuals with autism have. For example, there's a drug being reviewed by the FDA right now that is looking at protein and how protein can help to improve the opportunity for communication. When you do that, then you increase the opportunity for education. Welcome to Healthcare on the Horizon. I'm your host, Jeff Ostroff. Healthcare on the Horizon is about where things stand now with the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of specific diseases and how things might change with those in the future. We hope you'll find the information here useful in an educational sense, but also perhaps in a more personal way, should you, a family member, or a friend have one of the medical conditions we cover. Please note, the information shared on this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for the advice provided by your physician or any other healthcare professional. Hi, everybody. Did you know that an estimated 1 in 36 people in the United States has autism? Those numbers are likely to be similar in other parts of the world. The good news is that there are plenty of services available to help those who have autism and those who support them. Even better, there are initiatives and medical research underway which may further improve the quality of life for those who have autism. My guest expert, Chris Banks, President and CEO of Autism Society of America, discusses these things and much more on this episode of Healthcare on the Horizon. To learn more about Chris, listen to the episode and check the show notes. And please, don't forget to check out my other podcast, Looking Forward, Opportunities for Job, Career, Business, and Investment Seekers. Okay, let's get started. Well, hi, Chris. Welcome to Healthcare on the Horizon. Thank you very much, Jeff. Happy to be here with you today. Well, I'm excited to have you on. I think you may know this, Chris, but I'm not sure. I actually have a great nephew who has autism. Okay. So this is something that's a part of my family. And that in and of itself makes me interested in this topic. Also, I know how many people are being diagnosed with the disease, and you're going to tell us more about that. So it would help to set the stage, Chris, if you let us know a little bit about your educational background and work experience and when and why you came to the Autism Society of America. Sure, happy to do that, Jeff. But I thought we only had a few minutes. You want my long history? (laughs) No, we're (laughs) going to have to shorten that. (laughs) Jeff, my educational background and my how I came to the Autism Society is an exciting journey for me. I grew up in Monmouth County, New Jersey, and went to school at the University of Scranton in Scranton, PA. And after doing that, I went overseas for two years as an international volunteer with the Jesuit Volunteers taught. And it has an instrumental part in my continuing pursuit of what I was going to do because I got to see the world in a different lens. I got to see individuals and people have different experiences, different opportunities, different languages, different cultures, everything that you can imagine. Yeah, Came back to the United States and started working in higher education and have been in the not-for-profit sector for almost my entire career. A brief stint as a consultant in the not-for-profit world, 
but I have spent a good amount of my time working in higher education, secondary education, hospital administration, and assisted living administration. And that's how, that's where I ended my work before I came to the Autism Society. I was working at the largest assisted living facility on the East Coast of the United States. I think that what's important about that is when the board of the Autism Society was looking for a new president and CEO, they were looking for somebody who could help run the organization. They weren't specifically looking for somebody who was within the autism community. And so I say right up front, I am not a member of the autistic community. I'm not autistic. I don't have a family member who's autistic. Mm. I have a great nephew who's autistic and has Down syndrome. But I grew up in a family that was very conscious of and very active in supporting those who had other needs than your neurotypical individuals. Three of my four sisters are special education professionals. Wow. And so I grew up in that environment. And so it was very much part of a natural progression. Having worked in the not-for-profit sector, and I was a fundraiser. And you're always trying to raise money for individuals who don't have the means to pursue an academic career, but have the aptitude and they deserve the opportunity. Well, it's no different within the autism space. I think what the board was looking for was somebody who could run the organization. So I came in 2020. Jeff, I joined in January 2020, right before the world pandemic. Not when one should... Great timing. Great timing. Not when one should think about joining but it actually was perfect timing because it gave us a chance to pause, to create a strategic plan that allowed us to focus on things that we thought were prevalent and important within the autism community at that time. They're still important. And I have an expression that many people who work with me know, can't boil the ocean. We can do anything, but we can't do everything. Yeah. So from that, we narrowed down our strategic initiatives for the Autism Society of America We focused on building a stronger national organization, and we are the oldest and largest autism organization in the United States. Wow. Founded in 1965 by Dr. Bernie Remlin and Ruth Sullivan, both parents of autistic individuals. Their sons were both autistic. One was in San Diego. The other was in Albany, New York. And they met through work that Dr. Remlin was doing. Back in 1965, there was a survey circulated that parents could take and fill out to help understand whether their child was autistic or not, because the work of Dr. Leo Kanner was just starting to become a little bit more prominent. What happened was parents not only took the survey, but they were sending it back to Dr. Rumlin, which was not what he was expecting to do. So he became a researcher and a data collector as well. The organization got started to help families. And from there, we have grown. So I did the strategic plan to help us be stronger there, but also to focus on a few specific areas, Jeff. We wanted to focus on first responder training. And the idea with that is to train first responders, police, firefighters, EMS, as well as court officers and magistrates about how to better communicate and interact with individuals on the autism spectrum disorder, ASD, or autism community, as we like to refer to it but also to help members of the autism community know how to better interact with those men and women in uniform because it both have a responsibility. The second thing we focused on was we wanted to make sure that we were looking at a national program that addressed water and wandering. Jeff, I don't know if you're aware, but the second leading cause of death of children with autism is drowning. Having grown up on the Jersey Shore, it was unusual to think of the idea that you didn't swim, right? But that really isn't what it's about. It's about knowing how to be safe around water. In my office, there's a self-portrait of a young man learning to swim with five pieces of clothing on. That's what it's titled. 
Mm. And it was profound in its thinking and in its idea. We have to learn how to swim with our sneakers on, our jeans on, a backpack and a hoodie, right? Because that's what kids are wearing. And so water and wandering go together because individuals on the autism spectrum, sometimes not all, will wander when they're feeling overloaded and want a break or a reprieve. The challenge is they find themselves in dangerous situations with water. And so that became our second national program. And our third program was employment, Jeff. The underemployed and unemployed rate within the autism community is as high as 80%. You hear different numbers from different places. We haven't had a real good study on that in some time. We hope to make a difference in that at the Autism Society. We think that there's an opportunity there. There's many other things we could have done on a national program basis, but we had to pick and choose. I can't boil the ocean. So I'm going to figure out which are the things I'm going to focus on. Yeah. I laud you for your work in the nonprofit world. The first career of mine, I spent two thirds of it in nonprofit. I've certainly been an active volunteer and donor. And I love people who work with nonprofits. They do such great work and it's often unheralded. I do like the expression, we can't boil the ocean because that can apply to an individual. I can say I can't boil the ocean because many times I've got 5,000 things I could be focused on and it just can't be done. Chris, you talked a little bit about when autism was first identified. Can you give us a sense as to who and how many people it affects globally? The Autism Society of America was founded in 1965, but work has been going on before then by Dr. Leo Kanner, Johns Hopkins University. So, I mean, we were started in 1965. Work's been going on since then. We see an increase in the prevalency rate ever since the CDC started looking at it in early 2000. That prevalency rate was one in 150. Most recent study that was released a few weeks ago was one in 36. That's wow. here in the United States. That roughly comes out to about 2.86% of the population. That's those who are diagnosed. It doesn't include those who are not. It's probably even more prevalent. We also recognize that prevalency rate for a long time was determined by the testing of young boys, 8 to 11 years old. It wasn't until later on that they started testing girls. And it was only done in specific parts of the United States. It wasn't universal. So it's an expanding condition that we see more and more individuals exhibiting. Chris, is it more common in the United States versus other parts of the world, or is it pretty much equally distributed around the world? I can say this. It's not solely a United States recognized condition. It's across the world. We see programs for autism in Europe through the United Kingdom, as well as in other parts of Europe. We, the Autism Society of America, have a wonderful relationship with the Embassy of the State of Qatar, and they have a lot of work going on there. We see work in Australia, South America. I have interactions with the First Lady of Argentina, who is doing some work about autism in South America. So I like to say this, or I say this, autism is an equal opportunity offender. It impacts the lives of everybody, no matter what their socioeconomic or geographical components are. It's around the world. It's around the world. The prevalency that I've stated, one in 36, is here in the United States. Yeah. That rate has not been a worldwide determination. But I think we can extrapolate from that. I want to get back to some of those points that you made, Chris. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, whatever, we weren't hearing much about autism. Everybody seems to know what autism is all about. And the numbers seem to be much higher 
than they would have been 20 years ago or whatever, and certainly probably 40 years ago. Is that, Chris, because we've gotten better at diagnosing it? Is that the main reason why, like maybe a lot of people had autism in the 1930s and 40s, but we just weren't aware of it, weren't diagnosing it? I think I'd make several comments. One, I don't know that everybody knows about autism. I wish they did. Okay. And I say that with respect because our work continues to make sure that we're raising the awareness. However, complement to what you're just saying, acceptance has been the mandate and the mission of the Autism Society of America for the last three years to move to acceptance. It's one thing to be aware, it's much more to be accepting of an individual with autism. And I think that adds to the environment. Our work is making the community more aware and as a result, giving us tools to be more accepting of it. We still advocate for early diagnosis of young children as young as nine months and then every six months thereafter for a diagnosis because early intervention has been proven to have better outcomes for individuals with autism when they're diagnosed early and provided with the sports and services they need so they can live fully. I think the other thing that's important with that question that you asked is that we recognize that we still have a long way to go. We see many adults who are identifying as autistic now that we've given them more information about what autism is and about ways and that it manifests itself in social behavior and communication and other sensory related items. We're diagnosing more and we're continuing to do that. And I'm grateful we are. I think we're making people more educated about what autism is. And as a result of it, they start to look at it from their point of view and their perspective. And we've created more of a welcoming environment. We're not done there. There's a lot of work there, Jeff, that has to occur. But I think those three things add to an increased prevalency rate. Okay. Something else that you alluded to is something that I have observed myself, and I'm wondering if there's an explanation for this other than the diagnostic testing, Chris. Why does it seem that most autistic cases affect boys? Well, it's not most, it's many. And I say that intentionally. First, we were only testing boys for such a long time. And it, boys, it seems that the diagnosis is about four times greater for boys than girls. Yeah. Okay. However, I want to make sure we're very clear here. We know that autism impacts girls and we need to do a better job at that. Girls, women with autism tend to do much more masking and camouflaging of their autism. Ah. And as a result, they weren't being diagnosed. So there's an adverse impact. Wow, that's really interesting. And Chris, I want to come back again to something that you said. You said early intervention is Mm -hmm. so important. Can you define more specifically the age range that you have there on early? Like from birth to what age is really considered early intervention? Well, we start to test at nine months and again, do it every six months thereafter. Once verbal communication is at that time frame where a typical child will start to communicate verbally is when we want to make sure that we're bringing intervention in. So you start at 36 months, as early as, if not earlier, and really get to that point. Let's take that a step further. I know that there are different degrees of autism. There's an autism spectrum. If I'm a parent or a would-be parent of a child What are these symptoms that I might want to be looking for, Chris, to know that I need to really take this testing that you're talking about seriously? 
the signs that you're looking for are eye contact. Eye do they contact. make the eye contact with you as a child? And infant, do they follow you through the room? We can see where a child is paying attention to us and has that affect. Is her affect absent in that child from the giggling to the smiling to even the shock or the ooh or the scare? There may be some sensory issues, lights or not, right? Sounds. And then, of course, communication. Those are all indicators that people would be looking for. I think it's very important to encourage your listeners to remember that it's pediatricians and psychiatrists and professionals that make the diagnosis, not parents, not a sibling, not an individual per se. If a parent is interested in wondering, is my child autistic or do I have that? Come to the Autism Society of America. Come to our website, autism-society.org. Come look at resources we have there or call our helpline. 1-800-3-AUTISM, 1-800-3-AUTISM. Talk to individuals who are professionals in the space of autism and helping parents and families, and then you'll be guided toward the resources in your community. Very important that you take advantage of the professionals there. However, few there are, and there are way too few for us right now. We need many more professionals in this space, but I think that's an important part of the indicators that one might be thinking about, is my child autistic? Good points. Very helpful. Thank you. Let's talk, Chris, about some of the new or recent developments in preventing, possibly, or at least diagnosing and treating autism. You're right there at the vortex of things that are going on. What can you share with us about that? So, Jeff, there is no cure for autism, so it's not a matter of preventing autism. Okay. Let's start and clear the air of the air in the sense of that's been an ongoing debate it was for many years. There's supports and services that allow individuals to live a life that's fuller, but they'll always be autistic. Yeah. And their autism will manifest in varying degrees based on circumstances, situations that they find themselves in, as well as their own needs. I think secondly, it's important to realize that the resources that are available at all different ages, it's not just for children, right? An individual with autism, think about it as a wheel versus as a linear projection. There are individuals who have higher support needs and lower support needs, and it varies based on the circumstances that they themselves are within or find themselves in. It is not an autistic at this point and always at this point. It may change. I like to describe it this way. It ebbs and flows based on where you are and what's happening and who you are. There's a saying, if you've met one autistic individual, you've met one autistic individual. That's it. Right. So it varies, right? Your grandnephew's personality contributes to who he is in such a unique way that his autism is unique to him. Yeah. Now it may be similar to others, but it's still unique to him. And the supports he needs may vary. That could be verbal. That could be social. That could be physical. There are a lot of professionals in the space of speech, occupational, rehab therapy, ABA, all kinds of different ways in which an individual can get the support they need. I really hope you're enjoying this episode so far. If you are, can you please do me a small favor? Let some of your family members, friends, or others in your network know about it and about healthcare on the horizon. If you happen to like this podcast, my interviewing approach, or perhaps even my voice, please consider checking out some of the many services my business provides. These include podcast hosting, creation and consulting, voiceovers, professional interviewing, production of audio or video promotional profiles, 
to help you sell your business, promote your services, increase your customers, or raise funding, and services to help you market to the large and growing seniors population. That's something I've actually written a book about. To learn more about all of this and my other podcast, Looking Forward, Opportunities for Job, Career, Business, and Investment Seekers, please visit www.jeff-ostroff.com. You can also email me at jeff at jeff-ostroff.com. Chris, are there any new developments in terms of diagnosing or treating autism? I think we see variations of things happening from the past as well as recognition of other supports and services. So, for example, in the nonverbal community, with technology, individuals who are nonverbal have been able to use iPads. Well, that didn't exist 20 years ago. How blessed they are, how fortunate we are, because we benefit from all of their intelligence, what they have to offer, right? Their experiences in a medium that we might not have been able to communicate. We weren't able to because we didn't have iPads 20 years ago. Exactly. Right? So we take that and we look at that. We see continuous improvements in supports and services for the autism community. The autism community has been a community that has learned over and over again in different ways based on new opportunities, new experiences. And I think we'll continue to adjust that. There's not cutting edge technology in the sense, oh, it's going to change the treatment, the diagnosis, which might one think of in some other biological illnesses like cancer. So I don't think it can identify in that way. But there are new supports and services. There are new techniques coming about, new technologies. We see virtual reality as a new training medium for some individuals with autism. We partner with a company that is doing virtual reality and we're using it for training for first responder training. We have adaptive swim programs. We know that if we develop a swim program for the autism community with a universal design concept, everybody will benefit from it. So those are things that are nuances, if you will, but no cutting edge in the sense of, I think, what you were alluding to from the traditional health mindset. We're not waiting for the next Da Vinci robo knife hybrid surgery, a little bit of a reach back to my past life as a hospital administrator there. But I think what we are seeing is continuous improvement on supports and services and opportunities to meet the needs of the individuals with autism and their families. And just to clarify, I think I've got this, Chris, but I want to make sure it's not like there's any drugs that are being tested that would help somebody with autism. There are drugs that are being tested that will address some of the coexisting conditions, ADD, epilepsy, some other physical conditions that also exacerbate some of the challenges that individuals with autism have. For example, there's a drug being reviewed by the FDA right now that is looking at protein and how protein can help to improve the opportunity for communication. When you do that, then you increase the opportunity for education. So there are a variety of things like that that are being reviewed or looked into, but there's no that I'm aware of proven and there's many disproven theories on where we can take a pill to remove autism. I'm friendly with a young man and his father who one day his father asked him if you could take a pill to remove your autism, would you take it? And the young man's response to his dad was, if you could take a pill and get autism, would you take it? (laughs) That's a good response. It's a varying degree, right? Each family will look at that, posit that question in a very different and personal way. Yes. 
you touched on this quite a bit here with that last answer, Chris, but I just want to explore it a little bit further. Healthcare on the horizon, of course, is looking into the future a bit. You mentioned that we can't prevent it right now. There are some things that you're aware of in terms of the treatments, approaches. I'm wondering if you see anything in the future that might either help identify perhaps parents who are more at risk of having an autistic child or new kinds of therapies or new ways of diagnosing it early or whatever. Do you see any of that in the future? There are tests occurring. There is work being done for looking at the genetics of autism and looking at the DNA for that. What I would say, though, is that is not the work that the Autism Society is involved with. The Autism Society is involved with those individuals in the autism community now and making sure that they have the connections for the empowerment of those individuals to live their life fully. We're trying to create connections, empower individuals in the autism community with the resources they need to live fully. Others will be doing other work. There are others that are doing lots of research and science work, connections between coexisting conditions, et cetera. We'll continue to collaborate with them, but at the same time, our vision is we're creating a world where everyone in the autism community is connected to the sports they need when they need it. It's a, a little bit of the here and the now, if you will. Yeah, I got it. Chris, what would be a couple of tips that you might share with people that might help them to better manage their condition or their loved one's condition? You're, again, really at the center point of so much that's happening there. If you're not sure, ask. Somebody walks into my office right now, literally from where I'm speaking, the lights might be too bright. The shades might need to be drawn. The volume might be too loud. Those mm -hmm. are real simple, maybe oversimplified, but they're accommodations. Yeah. So ask if you're not sure what accommodations they may or may not need. Yeah. If you're in the autism community, ask for those accommodations. I am members of my team who are on the autism spectrum that when they come in, we lower the lights so that they're more comfortable. Yeah. Well, I'd make sure I close the blinds. I think that tips for working with autistic individuals and members of the autism community, be specific. Give lists and examples and make sure that you're thorough in what you're explaining. That's not talking down. That's just being thorough and making sure that you've understood it. For example, you gave me a list of things to prepare, 13 different items of how to prepare before this <laughs> talk. I went through it very carefully before we got on to make sure that I had looked at it. That's yes. a helpful tool, right? Yeah. That's universal design. You didn't design that with me as in thinking, all right, he's autistic and he needs this. You no. designed it for anybody who's a guest speaker on your podcast. Universal yes. design. It works for everybody. So that's the set. First thing is ask. Second thing is think about what accommodations can I make for others and what accommodations should I be asking for? Yes. I think the third tip that I would say is that if you're unsure, call experts, talk to the Autism Society of America and connect with the Autism Society affiliate in your community. I think it's important for your listeners to hear the Autism Society has affiliates in 70 locations across the United States. We have chapters as well, and we have associations and relationships. Those affiliates are at the grassroots level, providing supports and services in the communities in which they live. They're supported by the communities. All of the funds they receive stay there. Nothing ever comes to the national office. 
the national office supports itself through its own fundraising. And I think that is important because what I like to tell the community is what's raised there stays there. One of the many events I attended this last April for Autism Acceptance Month, I would tell those assembled, what's raised here stays here. It's right here. It's going to be used to help their families so that you build a community of people who can support you and help you. If you're in Akron, Ohio, and your child is diagnosed with autism and you're not sure what to do with the Akron public school system, well, you should be talking to Lori Kramer at the Autism Society of Akron, Ohio, and let her help you to navigate the public school system in Akron. That happens 70 different times across the United States because we have 70 different affiliates that can do that for you. That is terrific. This would be a perfect time, Chris, to have you share with our listeners things like what are some of the resources that they can find on your website? You mentioned about jobs. That's really important. What you're trying to do, what people can do to try to find a job or find a job for their loved one. The website, again, you mentioned that. It's worth mentioning it. Please share with us some of that information, Chris. I think that if you are autistic or a member of the autism community, meaning a family member, loved one, somebody you care about is autistic, connect with others in your community is so important. And do that by reaching out and finding the affiliate in your area so that you can talk to the others, find out how others have gone through this. Ruth Sullivan and Bernie Remlin founded the organization because they needed special education for their child. That was what they're trying to do. Well, our special education programs and the public education system is so robust because of that. So that's one thing. And reach out and find out. We're doing work at first responder training. And if you have expertise in that, let us know. And or if you have needs for that, let us know. Employment is so important because we're trying to change the culture around the employment of individuals with autism. I also would say one thing we haven't talked about, Jeff, is the Autism Justice Center. And the Justice Center is a pursuit of trying to make sure that individuals whose human civil rights are violated get assistance. We're not trying to become a litigious organization. We're trying to make sure people get their rights protected and insured. We're still in the very early stages of that, very early stages, but we're moving along with that. And it's part of our strategic plan. It's very important. And lastly, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about our vaccine education initiative. We've spent a great amount of time to bring the COVID vaccine to the autism community because individuals with developmental disabilities are at a greater risk from COVID. We learned a lot because of COVID. What we've learned is the things that we could apply there, we could apply for the flu, for flu season to make sure they get it. We also can apply it to access to healthcare in a different way. So we're spending time training professionals about how to better deliver their services to the autism community. And so we are doing vaccine education initiative work across the country to open the doors, if you will, of the medical community to the autism community in ways it hasn't been before. Pretty exciting stuff. It is exciting stuff. A few quick follow-ups before we'll end. Do you think that other autism organizations around the world are doing similar kinds of things to help their populations? There are many not-for-profit organizations focused on autism, Jeff. Some of us are doing similar things. Some of us are doing very different things. Okay. There is no other autism organization that has affiliates across the United States like we do. There just isn't. There are many that are focused on employment, but they're looking at it from a different point of view. 
Our focus is not so much on the recruitment of autistic individuals as it is the retention of autistic individuals. Ah. We want to not only help you get a job, but keep the job and change the culture of where you work so that you're impacting corporate culture or the environment in that space. Worldwide, this is an issue for employment. Yeah. And it's not just the fact that you have so many individuals unemployed, which is just unwise, but it's not good for the economy. We're losing out on all of the gifts and talents of other individuals when we don't do this work, trying to get them employed. We're doing a disservice to them. We're also creating lifelong challenges for benefits that we don't have to have that we can work on for those who can work, find that work to help be self-sustaining. And for those who can't, to make sure they have the opportunity to excel where they can. Everybody can do something. What is it that they can do that gives them a sense of fulfillment? And I think several of us are working on that here. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more with you in terms of what the benefits are of having people with autism employed. Just one last time, Chris, the website, the website. The Autism Society website is autism-society.org or call our helpline 1-800-3-AUTISM, 1-800-3-AUTISM. Okay. Chris, this has been great. Thanks for sharing all this information. It's such an important topic that needs to be addressed. Whatever little that I can do to help not only increase awareness, but as you've pointed out, increase acceptance of it, I'm happy to do. And I laud you for everything you're doing for Autism Society of America. Thank you again so much for being on Healthcare on the Horizon. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Healthcare on the Horizon. I hope you've enjoyed it and will benefit from it. And if you did like it, please share this episode with anyone you know who you think might also find it of value. And if you have any comments or questions about Healthcare on the Horizon or any suggestions for future topics or guest experts, you can reach me at the website www.jeff-ostroff.com or through my email address, jeff at jeff-ostroff.com. Thanks.